When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B31 Perish in Blood Though he'd be the victor, his opponent would neither fall into his hands nor escape, but would die close to the water. As prophecies go, it was clearer than most, and it certainly had the right thrust. Septimius Severus would win, and Clodius Albinus would die. That was all that really mattered. As for the rest, well, the gods could have their way. Severus had always been a supremely confident commander, but tempered by obedience to the gods. After his general, Virius Lupus, had lost Lower Germany to Albinus, it seemed wise to take the auspices before proceeding. Julia might have chided Severus for having any doubts, but she also understood his need for certainty. A quarter million soldiers were about to engage in the largest battle in all of Roman history. It was useful to know whether the gods had picked a favorite. Now that the augurs had spoken, there was no more need for delay, and Severus made his final preparations. His eventual target, the military headquarters of Clodius Albinus, was their former home and Caracalla's birthplace of Lugdunum. As Severus marched off toward Noricum in the company of his legions, Julia was left in the bitter cold of a brutal Pannonian winter. In early 197, Julia Domna was 27 years old, and her sons Caracalla and Geta were 8 and 7. It had been nearly two years since Albinus had launched his rebellion, on the heels of Severus elevating Caracalla to Caesar. But Severus had delayed returning west until a few things were resolved, and in late 195 he'd received two welcome bits of news. The first was that Byzantium, last holdout of Niger's forces, had been taken and sacked after a brutal two-year siege. The Byzantines had fought tooth and nail, using clever defensive engines designed by their very own Archimedes, an engineer named Priscus. 
But in the end, they'd been methodically ground down until all their food stores had been exhausted. In one brave final act, the defenders had torn down their houses for timber to build ships and cut the hair of their women to braid ropes. Under cover of a huge storm, they'd sailed out from the city to scavenge the countryside for supplies. But they'd been spotted by the Romans, their fleet destroyed, and the desperate sailors cut down to a man. As Dio records, when the surf had subsided, the whole sea around Byzantium was covered with corpses and bloody wrecks. The massacre extinguished their spirit of defiance, and the city finally surrendered to Marius Maximus. On Severus's orders, Maximus had executed all the rebel soldiers and city magistrates. The only defender given lenient treatment was the brilliant engineer Priscus, whom Severus decided to keep around for use in future campaigns. Byzantium was made a tributary of Perinthos, and its defensive walls were torn down, as they'd remain awaiting the arrival of the later emperor Constantine. At around the same time, at Severus's request, the Senate had declared Albinus to be an enemy of Rome. With these pieces in place, the time had been ripe for a triumphant return to the West. Severus and his family crossed Anatolia and Thrace to arrive at the upper Moesian capital of Viminacium. While passing through lower Moesia, they'd briefly met with the respected legate and governor Polinus Auspex, who'd actually congratulated Severus on finding a father, referring, of course, to his recent announcement that his father was Marcus Aurelius. I'm guessing somewhere in Moesia, there's a huge bronze statue of Auspex's cojones for having the guts to try that one out. From Viminacium, Severus had traveled south to Rome. The detour was only possible due to a temporary stalemate. Albinus now controlled not just Britannia and portions of Gaul, but also Hispania Terraconensis and Lower Germany. For his part, Severus had blocked the passes into Italy and installed loyal governors in all the border provinces. In the capital, Severus had escalated his Antonine fiction by making a dedication to his ancestor Nerva on the 100th anniversary of his elevation. But by early 197, Severus had returned to Upper Pannonia to prepare for the epic battle to come. Julia knew her husband commanded a staggering number of troops, but she also knew Albinus led a comparable force. Cassius Dio numbered each side at 150,000. Even if the gods had promised victory, it had likely come at an enormous cost. With Severus now marching west, through Noricum, Raetia, and Upper Germany, Julia was left with hopes, prayers, and her two young sons for company. But before very long, word reached Carnuntum on the full scope of her husband's victory. The decisive engagement had taken place near Lugdunum on February 19, 197. As the tide of battle washed back and forth, Severus himself had been knocked from his horse, and had stripped off his cloak, drawn his sword, and led his new praetorians against the enemy. At a critical moment, Roman cavalry swept in, 
under his general Julius Latus, to consolidate a Severan victory. As expected, the final death toll was staggering. Dio reports that the numbers that fell on each side were beyond reckoning. Many even of the victors deplored the disaster, for the entire plain was seen to be covered with the bodies of men and horses. Blood flowed in streams, even swelling the rivers. And just to emphasize, these were all Roman soldiers, in an empire just recovering from the Antonine Plague. It might have been a win for Severus, but it was a major loss for Rome. Returning to Carnuntum, Severus likely related to Julia the final fate of Albinus. In the wake of the battle, the city of Lugdunum had been sacked and burned by Severus's troops. Albinus's body was found near the Rhone, already dead by his own hand. Severus had cursed him, cut off his head, and sent it back to Rome on a pike. He'd then lain out Albinus's body and ridden over it repeatedly on his horse. When the corpse was sufficiently desecrated, it had been thrown into the river, along with the bodies of his murdered wife and sons. It was gruesome and bloody, but at least it was final. Though his rule was now uncontested, Severus intended to make it complete. He ordered summary executions of traitorous governors and generals, as well as local nobles who'd supported Albinus. All their properties, along with those of Albinus and his friends and relatives in Africa, were confiscated by Severus for the Roman treasury. The governors Severus installed in Gaul and Hispania were given one additional task, to hunt down and execute all of Albinus's former supporters. In the spring of 197, Severus decided to return to Rome. A few weeks prior, the Senate had sent a delegation north to congratulate him on his great victory. Which was nice, but you remember those senators who'd been pleading with Albinus to come seize the empire while Severus was away? Well, Severus totally, totally does. And he's got a few words for them. Words, and also a few sharp swords, but let's do the words part first. To start with, you will please deify my dead brother, Commodus. My dead brother, Commodus. Second, you're all a bunch of hypocrites for denouncing him, since you're just as bad or even worse. And third, I've arrested 64 of you for treason, and I've decided to release, oh, let's say 35, and kill the other 29. Anyone want to ask why? I didn't think so. Severus used the funds generated by his purges to give the army a substantial raise, their first in nearly a century. And, perhaps inspired by his own happy union, Severus also restored the right of Roman legionaries to live with their wives. With his enemies defeated and the soldiers taken care of, Severus's control of the empire was effectively complete which is a good place to be when you're confronting a major war with the Parthians. Okay, so we've got some catching up to do. As you probably don't recall, back in 186, 
on the death of Julia Domna's great-uncle Sohamus, King Vologases IV of Parthia had invaded Armenia and put his son Vologases V on the throne. As you also may recall, Commodus hadn't done a darn thing about it, and Armenia had been lost as a Roman vassal. As you really don't recall, just north of Armenia, between the Black and Caspian Seas, sat the loyal Roman client kingdom of Iberia. The last time I mentioned them, their king Pharasmanes had been granted expanded territories by Antoninus Pius. Pharasmanes had reigned for 50 years before finally dying in 183. He was succeeded by his son, who took the throne as Amazasp II, which is really fun to say, Amazasp. To shore up his northern flank and generally improve relations, King Vologases V of Armenia married his daughter to King Amazasp II of Iberia. The couple soon had a son, and when Amazasp died in 189, Vologases backed the young boy as the new Iberian king, Rez I, with his daughter acting as regent. So we've got King Vologases IV in Parthia, his son King Vologases V in Armenia, and his daughter and grandson, Rez I, ruling Iberia. Got it? Okay. In 191, King Vologases IV of Parthia died, after ruling for 44 years. During the last year of his reign, he'd been fighting an insurgency based in the old Median capital of Ecbatana. The moment he learned of his father's death, King Vologases V of Armenia swept into Media, put down the rebellion, and claimed the Parthian throne making King Vologases V of Armenia the new King Vologases V of Parthia. Armenia was left in the care of his son, the new King Khosrov I. When Severus had come east two years later to fight Niger, there's no record of any Parthian or Armenian involvement. Even Severus's revenge attacks on the Arabs and Adiabenes hadn't raised any Parthian eyebrows. But once Severus had gone west, Vologases decided that retaking Nisibis was now a Parthian priority. Severus must have had good eastern intelligence, because right after Lugdunum, he'd sent his cavalry commander, Julius Latus, off to the east to protect the city. By the time Vologases came in force against Nisibis, Latus was already there leading its defense. Severus's first eastern campaign had been a limited affair, designed to punish the allies of a Roman rival. But now that he was emperor, he saw numerous advantages to launching a full-blown war. To start with, it would protect Roman holdings, honor Marcus's legacy, and confirm Septimius Severus as his worthy successor. It had also cowed the Parthian king, gained plunder to enrich the army, and allow troops recently fighting one another to attack a common foe. And a successful campaign would put Severus on par with that greatest of Roman emperors, his, um, ancestor Trajan. Back in 193, even before he'd faced Niger, Severus had begun raising three new Roman legions, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Parthian legions. 
While he'd based the second in a new fort near Rome, he'd already sent the other two out east in preparation. In the summer of 197, Severus and his family took ship in Brundisium to rendezvous with the legions in Cilicia. Julia knew the capital and the rest of the empire was left in very safe hands. First, there was that new legion he'd stationed nearby, handy for all kinds of situations. But mostly, Severus had been busy staffing all key positions with friends, relatives, or longtime colleagues, often with African connections. It proved to be a pretty solid approach, and during their long time away, there'd be not the slightest hint of trouble back on the home front. Of course, Severus couldn't help bringing a little trouble with him. In the form of the new Praetorian prefect, Gaius Fulvius Plautianus. Plautianus was Severus's cousin, longtime friend, and fellow native of Lepsis Magna. According to Dio, he was also a thug, who used his position to plunder the Roman treasury and kill anyone who crossed him. Regardless, he and Severus were becoming inseparable which was a growing problem for Julia Domna since she and Plautianus did not get along. While Severus prepared for the campaign, he may have tapped Julia for a different assignment. The civil affairs of the empire required constant attention, and Julia Domna may have played an increasingly prominent role. By 197, she'd spent a decade at her husband's side, as he'd carved his path from governor to emperor. She clearly knew both what he wanted done and how he wanted it done, and as a bonus, she was native to the region. Due to Antioch's recent downgrade, the empress likely set up shop in Laodicea, on the Syrian coast between Emesa and Antioch. And yes, I have an updated map posted on the Ancient World website. Any dispatches Severus sent to Julia that fall likely spoke of easy victories. His initial goal of relieving Nisibus was accomplished without a fight. The powers bordering the city, Osrowini and Armenia, tripped over themselves sending royal hostages, money, and gifts. While not surprising for King Abgar, who even threw in a detachment of archers, it was a bit more so for King Khosrov I of Armenia. He was, after all, the son of King Vologases of Parthia, the same guy who'd been laying siege to Nisibis. So Khosrov was securing his throne by betraying his father. Regardless, the move was probably wise militarily and definitely wise politically, since Severus gave Khosrov a treaty confirming his kingship. By the time they reached Nisibis, the Parthians had retreated, and Severus built a fleet to follow them south along the Euphrates. Putting in at Babylon, now largely abandoned, Severus had marched overland to the Tigris and the grim remains of Seleucia. Crossing the river, he captured and plundered the Parthian capital of Ctesiphon. Thousands were slaughtered or taken as slaves, and the royal treasury was looted. 
though King Vologases escaped with his army, retrenching in Susa or some other eastern capital, the whole affair was basically a costly failure. In early 198, Julia received a letter from Severus with the details of a ceremony he wanted held. On January 28th, 100 years to the day since Trajan had become emperor, it was announced that Severus was taking the title of Parthicus Maximus. On the same day, he elevated nine-year-old Caracalla to co-Augustus and his brother, eight-year-old Geta, to Caesar. It was another imitation of his father, Marcus Aurelius, who had elevated Commodus to co-Augustus at the age of 16. Any letters Julia received later that winter would have had a distinctly different tone. Because after imitating Marcus, Severus had decided to take a shot at outdoing Optimus Trajan which meant sailing up the Tigris from Tessaphon and trying to capture the famous, and famously uncapturable, caravan city of Hatra. I mean, at least he wasn't trying to take it in the summer, but oh my god, there's just nothing around there. No food, no water, no trees, no shelter, just huge defensive walls bristling with thousands of the deadliest archers in the entire Near East. The siege engines you just built using that super-scarce wood? Yeah, those all just got burned to the ground. You want to attack the city walls? Make sure to bring extra men to drag back all the dead and wounded. Just like Trajan, Septimius Severus had a near 100% military success rate right up until the day he tried to take Hatra. Unlike Trajan, Severus decided to take out his frustration on his own men. The most prominent execution was his cavalry commander, Julius Latus. The same guy who'd secured his victory at Lugdunum and kept Vologases from taking Nisibis. The most likely reason was Latus's popularity with the troops, considered a threat by Severus or, more likely, by his right-hand man, Plautianus. Limping away from the failed siege in the spring of 198, Severus likely returned to his family in Laodicea. Over the next few months, he turned his attention to further reorganizing the Roman East. After its long history of flip-flopping, Osrowini was finally provincialized, with its new capital at Cari, just south of Edessa. But for some reason, King Abgar was allowed to keep Edessa itself, along with a few surrounding territories. Which suggests that, in addition to being a friend of the Christians, Abgar was one hell of a smooth talker. Severus also recreated Trajan's old province of Mesopotamia, with its new capital at Nisibis. But where Trajan's Mesopotamia had stretched between the Euphrates and the Tigris all the way down to the Persian Gulf, Severus's Mesopotamia was just the western half of Adiabene. To defend the new frontiers, Severus based the first Parthian legion in Singara, southeast of Nisibis near the Tigris, and the third at Rasena, between Nisibis and Cari. As historian Benjamin Isaac points out, the new imperial border was now much closer to Tessaphon than to Antioch.
In future wars, this meant Roman armies would have farther to travel, and their supply lines would be more vulnerable. At the same time, imposing Roman rule over territories that had been Parthian for three centuries guaranteed that wars would be more likely and more frequent. Either way, when you looked at a map, one thing was abundantly clear. The only thing hamstringing Roman control of the Upper Tigris was the absolutely maddening city of Hatra. I mean, take that, and you're practically sitting on top of Tessaphon, and the Parthians would be pinned back east at Susa. And the worst thing about Hatra was it was right there, only 60 miles from the new legionary base at Singara. Well, okay, the worst thing about Hatra was that it was totally unassailable. But Severus had time, troops, and strong motivation, and in the fall of 198, he decided to try again. This time, he actually managed to bring down part of the wall. But according to Dio, the Atreni responded by hurling flaming globs of bituminous naphtha at both Roman troops and their siege engines. Interestingly, the only engines that didn't burn were those designed by Priscus, the Byzantine engineer whom Severus had spared and brought with him to the east. Having breached the wall, Severus paused his attack to permit negotiations for the city's surrender. He figured the Atreni king Barsamius would do anything in his power to avoid Hatra's destruction and the plunder of its massive temple to the Mesopotamian sun-god Shamash. And Severus was right, just not the way he expected. During the ceasefire, Barsamius ordered the Atreni to work overtime to rebuild the damaged wall. Meanwhile, he refused all requests for negotiations. Once Severus realized the delay was getting him nowhere, he ordered his troops to resume the attack. His western troops, feeling the initiative had been lost, became rebellious and refused. Yes, they refused to follow the orders of their super-vindictive emperor Septimius Severus, even knowing it might mean their execution. Which, to me, says all you need to say about the impossibility of taking Hatra. And just to drive the point home, the Syrian troops, who followed Severus's orders to attack, were completely destroyed by Atreni archers. After twenty days, Severus broke the siege, and limped away for a second time back to Syria. In Laodicea, Severus returned his attention to reorganizing the frontiers. One of his main achievements was building a chain of forts stretching from Basie, east of modern Amman, southeast for 300 miles to Dumata. This move extended the borders of Arabia Petraea far out into the eastern deserts, securing Roman control over local tribes. Before the end of 198, Severus went to see the oracle of Zeus Belos in Apamea. The city was located on the Orontes River, some 30 miles north of Emesa. Though its foundations were Seleucid, the current city was mostly a 2nd century creation. 
after the massive earthquake of 115, the same one that devastated Antioch, the Antonines had patronized the city's reconstruction. Its most stunning feature was a monumental avenue, nearly a mile long and flanked by massive stone columns. Work had also been completed on a huge new theater, an elaborate fountain called a nymphaeum, and, most important to Severus, the Temple of Belmarduk, known to the Romans as Zeus Belos. Sixteen years earlier, just before meeting Julia, Severus had asked this same oracle about his future. The response at the time was a line from Homer's Iliad, comparing Severus to Zeus, Ares, and Poseidon. For a man as devoted to astrology as Severus, it was a clear promise of future greatness. Since then, Julia's horoscope and a series of dreams had helped guide Severus to the pinnacle of Roman power. Only one thing remained to be known. What would be the shape of his legacy? Severus had a wife, two young sons, and a large extended family, a line to rule Rome for decades, even centuries to come. Would the gods who'd made him emperor also look with favor on his heirs? Severus likely entered the temple with the confidence gained from past experience, which must have made it all the more unnerving to see him reemerge utterly shaken. Whenever he told Julia, then or much later, it must have sunk like a cold dagger in her heart. No vague Homeric quotes, symbolic dream imagery, or cryptic Delphic verses that could be favorably spun. Just a simple declaration. Your house will perish in blood. Blood. 